0: Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Network.
1: Now your host, Jared Serbu. Glad you're with us this week and on the program this time. After a couple years of frankly pretty dismal news about the military's privatized housing program, there is some much-needed help on the way. The Army has just helped to arrange more than a billion dollars in new financing with one of its biggest partners in the residential communities initiative, the real estate firm Lendlease. Those particular funds will be used to make improvements on six separate installations, and residents could start seeing the results as soon as this fall. It's not the first new influx of private capital the Army's helped to arrange for housing improvements in recent months, but it is by far the largest. To talk through how the arrangement works, we have two guests with us. Scott Chamberlain is the Chief of Capital Ventures in the Office of the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Army for Installations, Housing, and Partnerships. And Jason Kalavakis is the Office's lead financial analyst. Scott Chamberlain is the first voice you'll hear. The $1.1 billion is a is a much bigger amount than we've seen uh, in
2: several years. Uh, and so the our private partner, in this case, it's Lynn Lease who has six of our 34 projects. They came to the Army and the the Army worked with them. Uh, And it's been almost a year uh, in the making. Uh, We started last uh, spring early. We uh, met with the secretary and the Army leadership and then the Lynn lease uh, corporate leadership. And we came up with uh, kind of a, a needs list, what we saw at the different installations. And, uh, and then Lend-Lease went to market, so to speak, to try to gather that. And so the, the, the funds, the 1100000000 billion, they'll flow into the Lend-Lease's portfolio, their account. And then they'll, uh, they'll come into one place, and then they'll be distributed out to the six different individual project uh, construction accounts. And then they'll, you know, as, as contractors do work on different installations, they'll be paid. Repayments, uh, you know, is just like we pay off the loans we already had on the projects. Soldiers, uh, BAH, their basic allowance for housing. Uh, when they rent a house, they, they pay rent uh, just like you would outside the installation. The BAH comes in uh, to the uh, accounts at different installations, and we pay out uh, any kind of operating expenses, which would be utilities, electric, water gas, all those things are paid for by the project from the, the rent and we pay out debt, debt service, which uh, for me, it's just a mor- your mortgage. It's, uh, we pay off the mortgage and then we would, the remainder of the money would go toward either redevelopment later or it would go towards this specific loan, but all six of the Lend-Lease projects will have a part in paying off this loan. So uh, it, it's very much as, as we did
1: in the beginning. Uh, with a lot of the different uh, partner loans, and you said we several times there. I just want to get a little bit of clarity: is, is the army right. or the government in any sense a debtor here, or is it just lend lease that is uh, that has the debt outstanding?
2: No, no it, it's it's lend lease. I, I say we because I'm I, I've been doing this several years. We are uh, true partners, sure, with our uh, with our privatized housing companies in that decisions made uh, are, are made in coordination with the Army and Lend-Lease in this instance. So I, I always say we, uh, it's, a, it's a partnership, but Lend-Lease went out and, and got the money. And if I could just kind of go back to what a, what a project is, and I don't want to talk as if you don't know, but so a, a privatized project, and, and let's uh, pick a place, Fort Hood, Texas, is a Lend-Lease project. When we turned over Fort Hood, Texas to Lend-Lease, we leased the ground that the housing sits on to the Lend-Lease Corporation, and we gave them the housing, all of the assets. And that's the same we did at all of our privatized installations. They took those houses and went to a bank and borrowed money. You know, they borrowed against the assets that were on the ground. But most of them were all 50-year leases of the ground And they use the money from the lending institutions, not necessarily a bank, but uh, different bondholders. They use that money to either tear down and replace with new homes or renovate existing homes if they're in good enough shape to renovate. And then they run the housing for us for 50 years. At at the end of 50 years, we could either extend them for 25 more years or the assets, the houses would come back to the army. And our oldest project, Uh, is only 20 years old. So, uh, and our newest project is only about 11 years old.
1: No, that's actually really helpful because I'm not sure how many people really understand the mechanics of how RCI operates. As far as the mechanics of this financing agreement, is this the kind of thing that's sort of happened cyclically since the start of RCI, where there's been a periodic need to recapitalize projects? Or is this in specific response to some of the complaints and issues that have arisen in recent years about housing conditions?
2: All of the projects were set up to develop housing at the beginning of a project called the initial development period. And and for some, that might be five years. And for some projects, it was 10 years. And that would be they would take all the capital they got when they mortgaged the homes or, or uh, got debt against those homes. And then they either built new or renovated. And then, of course, all the time they're doing that, the rent continues to come in uh, that money pays for the expenses I told about, operating expenses, ongoing maintenance and repairs, uh, all of the uh, in, in interior, of the home, all the uh, appliances and renovations, and everything that's left over uh, goes into what we call a reinvestment account. So based on the housing crisis from two years ago, what we got with some of our partners, not all, uh, Lynn Lease is one of our larger partners, and uh, we asked them to kind of speed up, they would have eventually gone out in in a f- several years, probably a few, five to 10 years and got some debt, we asked them to go out now and take down some additional debt to address immediate needs that uh, that we saw.
3: Jared to add to that, this is Jason, by the way, all of these projects upon origination had a, the overall Development plan was to do a significant amount of development with the amount of loan proceeds and and contributions from all parties in the beginning. And then you have to kind of have a stabilization period to where you're servicing that debt and you're making payments and you're adjusting to efficiencies and operations and, and demand of housing. And then you gain inflationary increases to the basic allowance for housing or off you know, post um, non-soldier rentals and those types of things. And then you get at a point to where, um, A, you've paid down the debt enough and the revenue is increased enough through those factors that when that combines with a market environment that is conducive to maximizing leverage, you can kind of hit a perfect storm and, and, and enable yourself to, to bring in, in LendLease's case, a, a billion dollars worth of new capital to to address and further the development cycle. Um, and as Scott said, um, to really accelerate it.
1: That makes sense. Uh, just to be clear on some of that, Jason, did did the army do anything in particular to make these projects more attractive to capital markets, bondholders, et cetera, or was it as you were just kind of suggesting mostly a matter of, of timing and market conditions?
3: Um, I mean, I think a lot of it is timing and market conditions. Um, when you're talking to Wall Street and, and potential investors, you know this this program has been arousing success since it started 20 years ago. And the and the adjustments and improvements that have been made to to on post housing, I think that's the general viewpoint of it. Um, and the Army's continued support of the program. Um, everybody, every program has bumps in the road and, and difficult times, but to weather those storms and still provide. Um, quality product, you know, as long as they have that support, you know, that's what the investment community could would look towards with the Army. And then it really comes down to the underlying financial performance and then the uh, market circumstances.
1: Got it. Mr. Chamberlain, let me let me come back to you real quick here. Um, You you mentioned that this 1.1 billion dollars was mostly allocated on the basis of a a needs list that the Army put together. Was was that whole drill prompted by the, the, as you said, the housing crisis that kind of started two years ago, or was this something that had been previously planned or unrelated completely?
2: I think it was uh, certainly prompted by the housing crisis, Uh, and and the Army, uh, like the other services, we we got on, uh, uh, you know, got back on the ball, I guess, so to speak. Uh, I know we've said we've uh, the army took their eyes off of some of the some of the finer details that were noticed, uh, certainly by the the customers, which are all the renters. So the army uh, tried to lead the way in uh, getting out to the projects, and seeing what was on the ground. Uh, Secretary of the Army uh, involved uh, more the uh, the military leadership by appointing a four-star general uh, to oversee the the operations portion of kind of the daily operations on the ground, and and he's done a uh, the AMC uh, Army Material Command uh, and Installation Management Command have both done a excellent job of, of focusing a lot of the uh, Army leadership eyes back on the housing, and so we did do it in. Uh, because of that, like Jason said, we accelerated it. Um, and we're doing that with other uh, projects as we can. Uh, and so, uh, and, and also uh, wanted to mention, the Secretary of the Army did show support for Lend-Lease uh, and other partners by talking to a, a variety of bondholders, uh, kind of in the financial community uh, Wall Street type community. And he he did that uh, prior to the holidays uh, to help uh, to show them that the Army understood there was a crisis. We got after the
1: crisis and we're
2: making great strides to improve.
1: Got it. And, and looking just beyond Lend-Lease, can you give me some sense for, for what proportion of the overall privately owned Army housing stock you've been able to start to recapitalize in this way or in other ways? You know, what, what percent of the overall universe out there is going to start to get new funding?
2: Well, uh, between uh, Lease and uh, two of our other partners, Balfour Beatty Corporation and Corvius, I think those uh, three partners make up 75% of our privatized housing. Uh, and our privatized housing is approximately 87500 homes. So those are our three biggest partners. Uh, and like I said, 75% of the housing. So those uh, three partners have stepped forward and have either uh, put in new, uh, gone, gone out and got new debt or, or working on getting some new capital to infuse into these projects. Uh, and the others are all uh, still doing uh, everything they can uh, to improve the assets. Uh, but those uh, partners just have smaller, uh, some of them just have only two of our thirty four uh, projects. So they're uh, doing it as they can on their installations. But I think uh, all, all thirty four of our projects have uh, worked very hard for the last two years uh, to get after the issues that brought that were brought up in the uh, in February of nineteen.
1: Would it be fair to say though, that the Army wants new capital in in all of the projects, or is it just it the conditions vary?
2: I think conditions vary. We would we would like new capital, but we also have to consider uh, their ability to continue to pay on the debt they have taken down. And uh, COVID has hit our occupancy a little bit, and of course, uh, you know some people are concerned. And so some, and also uh, Jason and and you've noticed. I I get. Uh, reports of uh, lower uh, mortgage rates every day in my own personal mail. And so a lot of uh, soldiers have decided to, now is a good time to buy a home. And so our occupancy is down a little bit and that of course hits the bottom line. So we're, we will assist any of our partners who want to go out and get additional debt. Uh, and, and of course they will uh, take it down as their ability to pay.
1: What you just mentioned kind of raises a a related issue, but I'm sure you guys can can tackle this. There was a GAO report recently that that pointed out that because of what looks to me like basically a drafting error, the 5% reimbursements that were supposed to make housing companies whole for the 5% BAH reduction aren't correctly matched. So there are some projects that are getting overcompensated and some that are undercompensated. Can you give me a sense for how big a deal that really is on a project by project basis, and and just more broadly, have, have, has the Army been able to mitigate the impacts of that five percent BAH cut?
3: Jared, so I think to answer your question um, about the five percent payback, um, obviously a five percent reduction in revenue over time was it was an impact to the financial statements. Um, I believe to the Army portfolio, the full five percent equated to. Um, give or take depending on on how it's particularly done, say in the 80 million dollars a year range. So across the entire portfolio, so you can imagine that's a, that's a big number um, in, in affecting different projects differently. Since the uh, bought payback amounts have been inserted back into the legislation, um, and since clarified, that's obviously um, helped a great deal to replenish that amount that was lost. Um, so that is a, a revenue item, especially when you look at COVID and, and, and the impacts of that on, on the operational performance um, is, a, is a very important amount of money to a lot of these projects that will allow them to um, address concerns that we have seen in recent years um, that they may not have been able to, to address if those cuts were still in place. We have not under under our current things, we have not I, I would have to look at the exact GAO you know, wording on, on that report, but I believe that we have been comfortable with the validation in the payback calculations.
1: Okay. So what I think I hear you saying is even if even though it's not a perfect match, it's close enough to a correct payback that it's it's really mitigated most of what the cut was.
3: Yeah, I would say that for the most part that is correct.
1: That's Jason Kalavakis, the lead financial analyst in the Office of the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Army for Installations, Housing, and Partnerships, also talking with Scott Chamberlain, the Office's Chief of Capital Ventures. We'll talk more about a new influx of private capital to help improve military housing after a quick break. This is On DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is On DOD. I'm Jared Serbu, and we're talking with Scott Chamberlain, the Chief of Capital Ventures in the Office of the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Army for Installations, Housing, and Partnerships, and Jason Kalavakis, the Office's lead financial analyst, about the Army's recent approval of more than a billion dollars to help improve housing on six of its bases. All right, let me let me get back to some fundamentals here of, of how this is actually going to start to impact soldiers' and families' lives. What What sort of Timeline might we be looking at here as far as when real improvements might be made on the ground as a result of this capital inflow? So, this is Scott. I think uh,
2: we will see uh, renovations, infrastructure upgrades, some site planning uh, starting as soon as we have financial closing, which right now is uh, we estimate financial closing on the Lind Lease loan at uh, the end of March, uh, beginning of April. So, so we would see uh, actions taking place uh, immediately after that for renovations the uh, new and replacement home uh, so it's either a new home on uh, land or we tear down an existing home and build in its place that would probably be late fall uh, to as uh, to as late as uh, january twenty two so about a year from now because uh, you know you've got a demo you've got to tear up all the sewer plumbing, electrical and start fresh with new homes. So uh, renovations uh, probably as, as quickly as May and then uh, new homes uh, late fall or uh, early January of 22.
1: And for a sustainment program like this, I'm, I'm curious how prescriptive the Army gets. I mean, do you get down to the point where you say we think these 25 houses all need to be demolished and replaced, and these ones need these specific renovations, or is it a lot more in the hands of, of the actual RCI partner?
2: The partners come in with, uh, and of course they're the ones with people on the ground uh, continually, uh, they come in with uh, their, kind of their wish list, what they would like to do within budget, and that may be renovations, or it may be these 100 homes are in a state that we feel it's better to tear them down. Uh, but we, they work hand in hand uh, with the Army, uh, at, from the installation level all the way t- uh, to headquarters department of the Army. Uh, they work on what they would like to see. And we, we have some uh, uh, specifics. We want to see a certain number of bedrooms. Um, certain square footage, uh, different amenities, and we work with them uh, on coming up with uh, at least an agreement on, on those things. And, and then they go out and, and build or renovate to those uh, those standards.
1: I, I guess the real reason I asked the question is how much oversight is there to make sure that the funding is actually being used to address real problems that were at the root of the crisis and and not necessarily just the the investments that are going to bring the biggest ROI to the the privatized housing provider?
2: Well, once we decide on a scope, whether it's new, new build, renovation, uh, there are uh, army personnel on the ground uh, at every installation uh, to go in and do quality control checks on the construction. Uh, We require uh, with most every project that they have an independent construction consultant, uh, and, and, their lenders require, uh, similar, uh, because they're investing a lot of money. So there's uh, requirements to ensure things are built to code and to standard and, uh, re- reports are provided, uh, to all levels. Uh, so I think we're, we're uh, doing a very good job of ensuring that the money is used in the best possible manner.
3: And Scott, if I could, I could add a few things. Sure. Um, so, Jared, this is Jason again. Uh, the other aspect too, and one of the real reasons that the new home or replacement home construction is is slated for more like the end of fall to begin, is the Army is is partnered with with private, the private sector here to also utilize and benefit from their market expertise. Um, to be able to go out and do market research and look at what is being built and constructed in the surrounding communities of a given garrison and try to bring that feel to the extent possible to the installation and to the soldiers and their families there. So it replicates the competitive market that they're in. Um, So there is an analysis that's get done and they do that and then they present that to the army and the army has, you know, the review of those in agreement or disagreement with like adjustments or changes, Um, all of that vetting occurs when it comes to the scope of work that's being built. And then the only other thing that I would say regarding the the ROI comment, and obviously it's a little bit deal specific, but um, everybody's motivated to increase return on investment that's that's the private sector world we live in. But it should go to, needs to be understood that almost all of these projects, um, depending on the specific detail of them, have capped ROIs to the privatization partners. Um, so there's only so much of an ROI that they're going to get. Anything above that goes back into the reinvestment accounts for recapitalization efforts at some point in time down the road.
1: That makes sense. And I, I know we got to wrap up here, but, but the I'm making this example up, but where I could see people getting concerned is if they see on a given base a whole bunch of new construction, and meanwhile, a bunch of unremediated mold that is not being addressed by this funding in old, still-occupied structures. You're saying that's unlikely to happen because of that cap on ROI, and because at least some of that money is going to go toward reinvestment?
3: Well, I would say that's where the oversight comes in with the Army. Um, the, the partner isn't necessarily motivated to do that. Um, and I think that you know it's been reinforced over the last several years that you want to improve all the housing for the greater good of the entire garrison, and the project company. Um, if you just go and replace a very small percentage of a given inventory, um, it's not going to really benefit your ROI in the long run when you have if you have a, another area that has these significant issues in it so i think that the ROI would actually be hurt if you just focused on a smaller on a smaller piece of the pie you know obviously that's that's dependent upon every given situation but the overriding answer is the army will it has oversight authority on that and would not would not allow or should not allow those excessive negative conditions to persist while you're spending money elsewhere. Right. Like it's all about it. And that's where the needs assessments come in.
2: Got it. Okay. And, yeah. Sorry. And, Go ahead, Scott. And Jer- Jared, this is Scott. If I, if I could add, I the change between two years ago uh, when this started and today is uh, almost breathtaking. We, uh, we got the, the command on the ground uh, involved in, and they didn't necessarily take their eye off of other than it, it just was new. Uh, the housing, a lot of the housing was new and there wasn't really issues in the beginning. And the ba cuts uh, before they started paying the 5%, well that cut staff and at, at le- both levels of, at least the, the partnership staff and the army staff at all levels uh, were cut a little bit. And so I get on a call Every Monday that lasts between uh, an hour and a half and two hours, where the Installation Management Command uh, commander, who is a three-star general, talks with every one of his garrison commanders on a call, name by name, on everyone who is displaced from their house that on that day, uh, and he expects, uh, you know, there's 55 and uh, commanders on the call. Uh, at every installation we have privatized housing on, and also uh, Army-owned housing, and they go down name by name, and he knows the names, he knows the issues, and uh, it it has changed. Uh, It has really radically turned the the eaches around, and those garrison commanders are talking to the residents. We have quarterly town halls at every installation. So so there is a, a, a big change from two years ago where the focus wasn't necessarily on housing because there wasn't a crisis, you know, and we didn't know there was a crisis at least. So I think we've done, we've come a long way in the last two years.
1: That's Scott Chamberlain, the Chief of Capital Ventures in the Office of the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Army for Installations, Housing, and Partnerships. He and our other guest, Jason Kalavakis, the office's lead financial analyst, both joined me to talk about a new $1.1 billion agreement to speed up improvements to privatized housing on six Army installations. We'll post more information about the agreement with LendLease, the private housing provider, at federalnewsnetwork.com. Another short break, and when we return, a look at Navy efforts to increase diversity and inclusion. That's next on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is On DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. We're back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is On DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. Last fall, the Navy stood up a new task force to tackle issues of racial diversity and inclusion. That task force has just reported back with a big new study on race in the ranks of the Navy. It includes 60 recommendations for improving the Navy's race relations and inclusivity. Federal News Network's Scott Masione talked about the findings and what the Navy will change with Charles Barber. He's a senior advisor to the Navy who helped develop the recommendations.
4: The tragic events that took place this summer, with the killing of George Floyd, that served as the catalyst for prompting the Navy to take a look, an inward look at some of its processes and systems, to to, to really analyze systemic inequalities in the ranks. The task force was comprised of a, a number of professionals from underrepresented communities, and they over the over the past six months, they did a really good job of analyzing areas that ranged from talent management, career development, operational areas, and and really took a good look at how lack of diversity potentially impacts those areas.
5: This is a huge report. It's about 150 pages long. You break things down into about four or five different categories. Could you tell us a little bit about some of the recommendations that you've given to the Navy?
4: I'll start at a broader level and tell you, you know, when you're looking at inclusion and diversity, it's, it's really hard to kind of look at one particular area of the talent management process. You need to look at this in totality because, you know, if if you look at just how you recruit, you know, that that's only one piece of. You also need to look at how you're going to r- retain diversity in, in the military also. So we 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 took that into consideration and we looked at the entire talent management framework. Uh, so we looked at recruiting. Obviously, that's the that's the far left of things. That's that's where you get folks into the front door, and we looked at um, uh, things such as outreach to underrepresented communities. Uh, we looked at uh, the student loan repayment program. We we looked at establishing a Navy oversight program. So just a number of areas that kind of touch on recruiting. We also looked at another area which which was retention, and I kind of touched on that briefly. We we want to look at assigning like a a special assistant for diversity at the Navy Personnel Center. We also looked at expanding diversity data in in, in our record of proceedings for for selection boards, and we, and we also looked at ensuring that we have diversity on the selection panels at those respective boards. So. So all good things that we're looking at there for, for retention. Uh, when we get into professional development, uh, here's where we kind of get into the ability to increase um, scholarships for NROTC and, and, and just reestablishing some of those broadening opportunities uh, for officer selections and, and training, uh, such as Boost 2.0. So a, a lot of good things going on in that area also. Uh, LOE number four, which is actually our, our STEM, uh, Innovation in Science and Technology uh, so we wanted one of the recommendations that we looked at was uh, how we determine the Navy's military and civilian population as it relates to affinity groups. We also want to to review our clarifying guidance for outreach to the, some of those uh, some of those affinity groups, and we also are looking at how we can incentivize inclusive participation and, and leadership. And then we also have uh, another area uh, which, which is where we kind of bucketed some specific and miscellaneous recommendations. Uh, where where we want to look at um, adding respect to to the core values. We want to continue some of those listening sessions that took place uh, over the summer and over the past six months. Um, Mentoring programs, so uh, just a lot of good things going on. You know, we had close to 60 recommendations, so...
5: That's something that's going to take time to fix, considering that seniority is part of how someone gets promoted through the ranks. In the meantime, how are you making sure that minorities are represented in the higher echelons and that they get a say in the Navy itself?
4: I think it starts with setting expectations. I mean, because what what you kind of see in the demographic right now, uh, it 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 kind of is the result of hiring practices and talent management that has occurred over the, the past fifteen to twenty years. So uh, while the lack of diversity at the senior level is most certainly a symptom of of systemic inequalities, you know that particular area is going to take some time to to to, to rectify. But I'm but I'm very confident. Um, that we have the right controls and leadership support to kind of right the ship in, the, in that regard. Now, some of the things that we can do in the interim is we can we can look at how we develop and, and leverage uh, what we call uh, management advisory groups. You know, we, we want to be able to, to take uh, members from our underrepresented communities and give them a voice, give them the opportunity to kind of advise uh, senior leaders and our flag officers for on issues, policy issues that potentially impact them uh, as a community. Uh, we also want to look at that, that career development aspect where we want to mentor. So uh, those members of those underrepresented communities, we want to, we want to give them career development opportunities as they continue to progress up the ranks also. That's an area that has kind of been lacking uh, uh, over the years. So uh, in, in some cases you might have uh, a senior executive or a flag officer who may not uh, mentor or spend time with a, a member of the ranks who doesn't necessarily look like them, Uh, But we want to we want to we want to rectify that moving forward. Uh, So those those are just some immediate areas that we can fix immediately.
5: The military and the Navy themselves are only one microcosm of society as a whole. We know that there's uh, other systemic issues that keep minorities from succeeding. How's the Navy taking those into account when it comes to bringing in talent and ensuring that those people who may be a step behind still have the opportunities that they need to get ahead?
4: We have most certainly looked at how some of those barriers that we're looking at, uh, they take place to the far left before a a service member even comes into the military. And that's kind of where that STEM initiative kind of comes into place where we can kind of um, help offer, you know, accelerators or, or, or opportunities to kind of improve STEM programs before, you know, service members even come into the military. So that's kind of how we're looking at it to the left. Uh, and also when you think about what we've done with Task Force One Navy, the framework that we've put put in place, uh that that potentially will be a model for other organizations to emulate and, and benchmark. You know, when we look at what we've been through this the last six months here for the Navy, you know, we the the, the things that we found, we don't want to just tie these things to this naval readiness or or, 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 or the Navy's leadership. You know, when you look at inclusion and diversity and, and, and improving those things, systemic inequalities, uh, these things are good for humanity. And so so we know that the things that we're putting in place, it's, it's it's bigger than the Navy. It's, it's, it's bigger than us. You know, th- these things are, big, are good for humanity.
5: Now that this task force has created a study, what does the future force look like once the Navy starts to follow some of the recommendations that you put in maybe 20 years down the road or 50 years down the road?
4: I think you will see a Navy that looks very similar to what our demographic in the United States looks. You know, we're we're not we're not trying to tag quotas to anything that we're trying to do, but but at the same time we want to make sure that what you see in the Navy is what you see in the in the in the national demographic. So we wanna we wanna we wanna make sure we represent the melting pot of, of of our nation.
5: What's next for the task force at this point?
4: But now we get into the implementation phase. You know, we, we wanna take those those fifty plus recommendations uh, and we want to operationalize those into our to our Navy's culture of excellence. So uh, the the Navy has a a, a very large uh, um, culture co- campaign with five lines of effort, uh, and I won't get into all five of them. But there is one key line of effort uh, in that larger campaign that's it that's effects based inclusion and diversity. So those 50 plus recommendations that we kind of bucketed it into several uh, into those four task force lines of effort. Those recommendations will be operationalized and moved under to that uh, permanent uh, culture of excellence structure uh, under the auspices of that culture of excellence, and then they will be um, executed under under a very comprehensive implementation strategy. Uh, we also are going to research some best best practices and some approaches approaches with uh, culture because uh, we want to also give the Navy a, a mechanism to continuously diagnose some of these issues that you're seeing with the barriers. Uh, and and prescribe get well plans on a continuous basis. We don't want to keep talking about these same issues 15 or 20 years from now. So that comprehensive people and culture strategy, that's what we're going to put in place.
1: That's Charles Barber, the senior advisor for Task Force One Navy, talking with Federal News Network's Scott Massioni about the task force's findings and recommendations on race relations in the service. You can find more details about the recommendations at federalnewsnetwork.com. One more break, and when we come back, the National Security Agency's new Cybersecurity Directorate marks its first birthday. This is on DOD, on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu. Thanks for listening to Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. Few agencies are more concerned with cybersecurity than the National Security Agency. And although that's been the case for a long time, the new specialized cybersecurity directorate is only about a year old. David Luber is the directorate's deputy director. He talked about what it's managed to accomplish in its first year with Federal News Network's Tom Temen
6: cybersecurity director was formed in 2019 and was created to integrate NSA's cybersecurity mission to prevent and eradicate threats to our nation's most sensitive systems and critical infrastructure you know the cybersecurity directorate integrates NSA's threat intelligence vulnerability analysis cryptographic knowledge defensive operations and diverse technical expertise our cybersecurity year and review goes into more detail to this work we did towards the mission in 2020 And, you know, that's the first year of our full year as a cybersecurity director.
0: All right. And uh, how many people are involved? Give us a sense of the scope of the activity here. And by the way, are you headquartered at the main NSA location?
6: We are headquartered at the NSA main location in Fort Meade, and we have a, a vast number of folks that are part of our team and just a great group of folks and professionals.
0: And before we get into some of the specific accomplishments listed in the annual report, I just wanted to ask you, you think of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency at Homeland Security, CISA, as being in a similar type of activity. Do you two talk to one another, and is there some sort of collaboration or cooperation there?
6: Absolutely. In fact, CISA is one of our prime partners, but not the only partner that we have across the U.S. government. And I'll get into a little bit more of that when I talk about some of the activities that we've engaged on collectively together.
0: Well, let's get into that annual report that's online. And what do you consider some of the top highlights?
6: Well, first off, the top highlights of the cybersecurity year review was really created to demonstrate the returns on investment that NSA made in the cybersecurity area and for the stakeholders and the American taxpayers Really, the document is a testament to the skills and resiliency of the NSA people and the partners across the public and private sectors who work together throughout the year to protect the U.S. in cyberspace. The uh, year in review, we really created this to highlight in an unclassified way the accomplishments that were driven by our tremendous workforce and the partners, and to even provide uh, greater transparency to the audiences as we lean forward in this first year. And I'd be happy to go into some additional details on some of the things that we worked in that report.
0: Well, you mentioned that there were 30 actionable cybersecurity products. And tell us more about those. These are things that you coded or programmed or or, or will you tell me?
6: Well, really, when I talk about the cybersecurity advisories and products, what I'm really talking about is security guidance or assessments that we've put together that help our customers and the national security system, national security systems owners, the Department of Defense, the defense industrial base, and many others within government understand how to configure their systems and then understand also the threats that they may see from cyber actors. So whether that's making sure that we protect our nation's vital vaccine and make sure the networks are protected from actors who may try and target vaccine makers or When we talk about nation states that may want to use public vulnerabilities to gain access to your networks.
0: Got it. And here's where maybe the collaboration with CISA would come in and also maybe the National Institute of Standards and Technologies. They have advisories and guidance and so forth. Yours seems to be maybe more oriented toward the intelligence community and DOD, the classified end?
6: Both national security systems owners, yes, on the classified end, but also the the unclassified end. So just to give you an example, one of the efforts that we put together in one of our products, we issued this jointly between NSA, CISAs, and partners in the U.K., and Canada to warn against a particular advanced persistent threat targeting organizations engaged in COVID-19 vaccine research in the U.S. and the U.K. and Canada. So that joint advisory provided really important indicators of compromise and detection techniques and actionable mitigations. And as you might imagine, those sorts of advisories then help those in the vaccine process and developing the vaccine to really go and look at their networks, examine those networks, and then put mitigations in place.
0: We're speaking with Dave Luber. He's Deputy Director of the Cybersecurity Directorate at the National Security Agency. And there's one highlight that's really interesting, and that is you supported the DOD's transition to telework and releasing written products and providing commercial solutions for classified capability packages. And this applies to 100,000 people. Tell us more about that one.
6: Sure, absolutely. And COVID-19 really made us rethink how we work across government. And just like the rest of the the United States, the U.S. government started transitioning many of their employees to working from home. So our experts uh, in the cybersecurity mission rose to the occasion really to support the DOD into the transition to telework, but also enabling more than 100,000 users to telework securely. And as you might imagine, that included everything from releasing the best practices and products to use in a telework environment as well as how to identify and mitigate compromises to personal home networks as more users begin to use those as part of their official business.
0: Yes, because that's a mode of work that's likely to continue at a high level for some time, maybe even after the pandemic.
6: Absolutely. So this work continues, and uh, we are constantly engaging with many partners across the DoD and other national security systems owners to further refine that uh, guidance and provide additional insights as we learn more about the best ways to operate securely in a telework environment.
1: David Luber, the deputy director of the NSA's Cybersecurity Directorate, talking with Federal News Network's Tom Temin about the directorate's first year in business. Earlier in the hour, we heard from Charles Barber, senior advisor to Task Force One Navy, about how that service can improve racial diversity and inclusion, and also a new billion-dollar influx of cash to help improve Army housing. If you missed those conversations, we'll post this week's full show, as always, at federalnewsnetwork.com ondod on DoD. That's going to do it for this week's edition of On DoD. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jared Serby. You've been listening to On DoD on Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on
4: iTunes or Podcast One.